welcome to Sidebar, our mini episodes from Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. I'm Baby Himetha, joined by Laura Tunney. Hello. And Annie Linetti. Hey. So um, this week we have a sort of more serious, not so humorous sidebar uh, from recent-ish news. Uh, the Supreme Court has decided to take up a case on Native American parental rights um, and, and child rights. And mm-hmm. so, it, yeah, it is kind of a more serious topic for Sidebar, but we thought it was important to talk about. Also, it's been a minute since we've talked about um, Native American law. I think mm-hmm. it was our Minnesota Wild Rice episode last. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, since we are going to be talking about Native American peoples, just a note about sort of culturally accurate, sensitive terms. Um, I believe Native American, American Indian, indigenous people are all acceptable general terms to describe what we recognize as a very diverse set of people. Mm -hmm. Um, In Canada, you might might have First Nations or in other countries, Aboriginal. But um, speaking from personal experience also, Indian, just Indian, is not the same as American Indian. Right. And Indian American is definitely not the same as American yeah. Indian. Um, yeah. Which is pretty confusing. Very different phrases with basically zero overlap. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up as the only South Asian in Cherokee County, Appalachia, so I confused people yep. when I said yep. it was Indian. I can see that. So yeah. I will try my best not to call anybody Indian in this episode. Yeah. Um, I'm, I might for short refer to Native Americans as indigenous or native, but mm. just know that we are referring to the same group um, and trying to be as respectful as possible. So, yes, there is there is some, you know, new action that's going to be taken up by SCOTUS in, in a decision on Native American uh, adoption laws related to the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. But before we go into the, the new case, maybe we should do a little recap of Native American history, which I hope doesn't surprise anyone as f- Oh, man, sorry, Joe, you're gonna have to bleep that out. Um, <laughs> basically, f- Laura got to do it, Joe, so I get to do it once, too. <laughs> I'm just jealous. Um, That's fair. <laughs> Basically, for a long time, as you know, we should know, uh, we've had a pretty shameful history of violence, ethnic cleansing, what have mm-hmm. you. And since at least the 1800s, even apart from the worst of it, we've continued to have a heavy hand in Native American affairs mm-hmm. in telling them how to live their best lives. And not just the federal government, but states, too, um, have been literally paternalistic with Native American children, Yeah, both um, in the form of initially boarding schools, remember like Indian boarding schools, um, sort of whitewashing them. Mm-hmm. And then also through more like formal removals by state welfare programs. Mm-hmm. According to the National Indian Child Welfare Association, anywhere from 25 to 35% of all Native children were being removed from their families prior to 1978. That is wow. a disproportionate amount compared to yeah. if you look at Yeah, much higher. Yeah, much higher than the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. And out of those removals, out of those Native children that were removed, 85% of the children were placed in homes outside of their families and tribes, even when there were fit and willing relatives available to adopt. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned prior to 1978. I feel like that must be significant. What <laughs> happened in 1978? Good observation, Laura. Thank you. So in 1978, that was when the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act I referred to earlier that's involved in this case, that's when that was passed. Um, And the ICWA governs jurisdiction in the case of Native American 
custody or foster or adoption. So like jurisdiction wise, it says that the tribes have jurisdiction to govern these cases. So basically a tribal court will get to handle cases of like foster kids or child custody or adoption in any case where there's a native child involved. So mm-hmm. that that's as opposed to state governments, which normally handle these types of proceedings. Although we should know, like in practice, this jurisdiction ends up being shared often between the tribe and the state court system in some cases. Mm-hmm. But basically, the, the tribe is supposed to be given the preference jurisdictionally. And also, the ICWA gives priority to Native families to adopt Native American children in, in a separate part of the statute. So... Intervention rights are also important. The ICWA gives the tribe the right to intervene in cases of termination of parental rights or adoption. Um, And I guess I should note that the focus seems to be on the tribe and not just the bio parents. The tribe Mm -hmm. has the right to intervene. So there's a lot of focus on the political separation. Maybe, Maybe that focus is sort of geared towards like the sovereignty of the tribe rather than just the biological parents. Right. And this statute, the ICWA, was created in sort of direct response to, as we mentioned, these disproportionate separation cases in for Native children um, to protect Native American families. Mm-hmm. And I think that there needed to be a federal statute in place in particular for Native American uh, children because, like with all Native American affairs, Native tribes are, as we mentioned, sovereign nations. So I think that here the ICWA or some sort of federal statute was necessary to coordinate child welfare cases between these sovereign nations and state welfare agencies. Yeah, that makes sense. But since the ICWA was passed not that long ago, it has maybe unsurprisingly had opponents. Um, Legal opponents consist mostly of corporate law firms and private adoption agencies that have been trying to dismantle the statute for years. Um, most people really do regard the purpose of ICWA as essentially to (laughs) discourage white people from adopting Native children, Mm -hmm. which is a purpose that was perhaps undermined by a very notable Supreme Court decision from just last year. Um, That decision, if you guys might have heard, it was called Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl. (laughs) Very, very general. There's probably a million cases named the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But because it's that's the case because, you know, family law courts try, try to keep things people anonymous. So mm-hmm. you often have couple V baby boy, whatever, or like right. people's initials, the kids initials. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but adoptive couple V baby girl before the Supreme Court last year in 2021 was a 5-4 decision that ended up ruling in favor of the adoptive, i.e. non-native family. Mm-hmm. Um, the father the father of this kid was from a Cherokee tribe and the mother was a non-native and this couple got pregnant out of wedlock. Um, the mother asked the dad if he wanted to pay custody or just terminate his parental rights. He chose to terminate. So mom gives the kid up for adoption to a non-native couple in South Carolina, but doesn't tell dad. Oh. And yeah. And under the ICWA, the tribe at the very least is supposed to be informed. Um, and I guess they through some clerical error, they didn't get notified. Um, but eventually the dad found out. And when he did, he like intervened. Mm-hmm. Case got all the way up to SCOTUS. And the SCOTUS majority ruled in favor of the non-native mother, kind of entirely based on a 
textual, literal reading of the ICWA, um, the use of the word continued custody, SCOTUS majority argued that since the dad never had custody, he can't have continued custody. Mm. So it was a little contrived. Um, a lot of, a, <laughs> I mean, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, uh, you're not wrong, but. <laughs> so, so it, I, I mean, the argument just seems pretty flawed because it's like, oh, if we just get your baby in time, then we can get your baby mm-hmm. because, you know, we, if we just get in the nick of time before the dad or whoever even has custody, then, then we're good. Right. Uh, which can't seem to be in line with the purpose of the statute, which most would argue is to protect the Native American children from Mm non-Native intervention. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, Also, I think it was Justice Breyer who was the deciding vote. I think it was him that wrote a separate concurrence focusing a lot on the child's percent of Native blood. And I think that was like, it was like one point something percent Cherokee blood that the kid had. Um, okay. And he focused a lot on the, the, this quota. But notably, the Cherokee Nation does not classify its members based on blood quotas. I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of nations out there that classify members not based on a blood quota, but more as a political unit membership rather than a racial classification. Mm-hmm. And I often think the U.S. government tends to slip into the mistake of racializing everything, especially when it comes to these cases. So, mm-hmm. No, it's a really good point. And it's one that I think several tribes pointed out in this most recent case that's going in front of the Supreme Court. Several tribes, including, I believe, the Cherokee and Navajo tribes, filed briefs in defense of, of ICWA and they argued that the state's race discrimination argument is just there to be inflammatory and yeah. stated that membership in a native tribe is about politics, not about race. So, yeah, yeah it's a really important point. It comes up a lot. Um, it's it's easy to pull the race card um, it, both ways. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's easy to pull the race card as saying, hey, you know, it's, it's not about race. So, you know, we, we should be able to adopt regardless of if we're native members or not. But, you know. I don't know. It's complicated. I don't want to open a whole can of worms right here. (laughs) Yeah, I guess one thing I wanted to bring up is just this in in family law, a very common standard is that we're always looking out for the best interests of the child. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that a big piece of this statute was putting a lot of emphasis on that it is in the child's best interest to be connected to their tribal identity. Yeah. And having them be, if they need to be adopted, having them be adopted by someone of the same tribe um, or who is also native is very important to to their best interests. It seems that that is a pretty big argument here. Yeah, and but the, the, the interesting, I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because the interesting thing about this phrase is that the best interest of the child standard is originally a U.S. family law concept uh, that a lot of family law judges will will use and it's not often super helpful because it's seems to be pretty discretionary Mm -hmm. and so unsurprisingly people here people who are the non-native plaintiffs trying to hold on to the the child custody here or the the trying to retain the children's um custody here are using the best interest of the child standard in their favor because mm-hmm. they're saying, oh, well, we don't want to separate this kid that's been living with us for over right. a year already. So it, it really cuts both ways. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so speaking of that case, let's get into the sort of newer case, um, Brackeen versus Bernhardt. Chad and Jennifer Brackeen were in 
evangelical white, a.k.a. non-native couple in Fort Worth, in Fort Worth, Texas. And they had fostered for 16 months a baby, uh, which they call ALM because we don't use real names, full names in family court. Mm-hmm. ALM, the initials. Um, that baby was a member of both Navajo and Cherokee tribes. Mm-hmm. A caseworker had assigned the then nine-month-old ALM to the Brackeens and told them that they would foster him for likely 10 months. Mm-hmm. During that time that they were fostering, ALM's parents had their parental rights revoked due to drug problems that they mm-hmm. had. So the adoption agency later found a tribe member in ALM's tribe that wasn't related to ALM and deemed him suitable to adopt the the kid. But the Brackeens had, by that point, decided that they wanted to adopt him, um, not just foster him. Mm -hmm. Um, And this often is, you know, even in non-native court, fostering to adopt is a whole contentious thing. And Mm -hmm. it's it's often ends up, you know, foster parents want to adopt and then it becomes a whole sort of custody battle. But anyway, so the Brackeens decided they wanted to adopt him as is the case in many situations, they petitioned to adopt the boy when his biological native parents voluntarily terminated their parental rights. But the Navajo Nation intervened because of ICWA, mm-hmm. because they can't intervene. It gives them that right. right. So this, this, this child had Navajo blood, so the tribe had identified a Navajo family to adopt him under ICWA, because, again, it gives, you know, it, it purports to give Navajo families that priority in adopting at which point the Brackeens sued in federal court for an emergency stay. The Texas attorney general joined the Brackeens as a plaintiff to support the couple in their case. Um, and oh, man, I just want to note that this is. <laughs> Are you telling me we're talking about Ken Paxton again? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I missed that party. <laughs> oh, man, this is unfortunately the second time in a row I've had to inadvertently talk about Texas attorney general Ken Paxton in a podcast. <laughs> Um, no more. We shall not speak his name. Um, because the couple was backed not only by the state of Texas, but also Minnesota. Hey, guys. And mm. Indiana, uh, because other adoptive families in those states were also affected. So they like kind of joined in as like co-plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. And the federal trial judge in this case then held that the ICWA was unconstitutional. Uh, kind of surprising because Native mm-hmm. Americans have exercised their rights under this law for over 40 years at that point. Mm -hmm. The indigenous groups appealed and um, their attorneys mentioned something that Laura brought up earlier. Their attorneys stated that these white adoptive parents that were suing talk a good game about the best interests of Indian children, paternalistically contending that they know better than Indian families and tribes what is best for their children. Mm -hmm. So again, that best interest standard really cuts both ways. Yeah. So... In this case, the indigenous family eventually pulled out of the lawsuit, and so the Brackeens were able to adopt ALM because Mm. of that. But nonetheless, even though they got him um, and have him even now, they are still pursuing the cases. Okay, so then this case gets a little bit more complicated because ALM's mom gave birth to his younger sister, and the Brackeens sought to adopt that baby too, while at the same time, that baby's great aunt, who is also a tribe member, wanted to adopt her. Uh-huh. And so separately, the Brackeens took that case to Texas family court. And the and the Texas judge ruled in favor of the Brackeens and against ICWA, saying that the state's requirements in ICWA were unconstitutional, similar to what the federal 
court ruled earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is separate. The the sister case is a little bit separate, but the ALM, the original baby that the Brackeens have now, that case is still going on. So that federal case based on ALM, joined by other adoptive cu- couples, still in federal court. The plaintiffs are arguing that ICWA violates the Tenth Amendment. So. The, the the mom the, the the non-native couple who wants to adopt them are saying that this this law that you know the Indian Child Welfare Act violates the Tenth Amendment because the Tenth Amendment says that the federal government cannot regulate state adoption or foster care placements. Mm-hmm. Supporters of ICWA are retaliating that it doesn't replace state adoption regulations, um, but instead adds further protections to the existing system. And in that case, in 2018, the federal district court judge ruled in favor of the Brackeens um, that the ICWA was unconstitutional. And then the case was appealed. And now the Supreme Court, I guess, has decided to take it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Tenth Amendment because it sort of gets into what kind of ramifications this case could have now that the Supreme Court is going to rule on it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the Tenth Amendment essentially just says that the federal government can't regulate in areas that have been designated for the state governments, which state governments typically cover um, family law. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite a few legal scholars have have said that if the Supreme Court accepts the rationale that's being put forward by the states, which is that that ICWA is an unconstitutional intrusion and violates the Tenth Amendment and is also possibly a violation of equal protection principles because of this sort of race issue that we've talked a little bit about. If the Supreme Court accepts that argument and comes down on on the state side in this, there are other laws that guard tribal water and land rights and tribal casinos that could be in danger of being overturned because of that. Yeah, I I am by no means a Tenth Amendment scholar, but (laughs) I do think this case is going to be different from and and maybe a much weaker Tenth Amendment argument because it is Mm -hmm. talking about a sovereign nation. It's not talking about just, you know, the federal government ruling in areas that are state matters Mm -hmm. Uh, about state citizens, like the citizen yeah. of Texas. These are yeah. not citizens of Texas. They're, citi- they're, they're, they're tribe members. So mm-hmm. it does become a little bit different than yeah. I, I would think. Yeah, well, the Supreme Court likes to, likes to talk about slippery slopes. Like if I had a nickel for every time I heard the term slippery slope in law school, <laughs> I have a feeling that that will come up in this case when the Supreme Court is deciding it. Yeah. Um, we do have a, a new court now than what was decided in the case of a uh, baby girl, adoptive couple, the baby girl. So mm-hmm. w- we'll see with our one new court member if that rules any differently. Yeah. But I think this is going to be in a long line of cases that the Supreme Court is up against that, you know, implicate a lot of marginalized groups' rights mm-hmm. this year. Yeah. So before we go... I want to put Laura on the spot here and tell our listeners. <laughs> oh, God. oh yeah, that, I forgot about this. That this coming Monday, this coming Monday, March twenty first, Laura <laughs> will be representing Find Law on the Balancing Act, which airs on Lifetime TV. Yeah, uh, you, Laura uh, was in Florida earlier filming a segment where she talks to the great Montel Williams. It was so fun about. <laughs> <laughs> about finding an attorney, uh, the Balancing Act is a morning show that airs week that airs weekday mornings on Lifetime. Um, it airs at seven thirty a.m. Eastern, six thirty Central. 
So if you want to actually see what one of us looks like, this is... Shameless plug for our own. Yep. This is your Watch chance. Watch Laura. And uh, I am not a morning person by any means, but I will be there. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad someone will watch it because I probably won't. Um, yeah, I'm I, as excited as I was to make my jump from radio to television. I think I'm going to be one of those uh, quote unquote talents who doesn't watch their own stuff. It's just too. It's just too personal. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope uh, I hope people enjoy it and can get some helpful information out of it. It was fun, and Montel Williams is very nice. Thanks for listening to Sidebar from Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. We'll be releasing these every other week between our full-length episodes. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if there's a topic you'd like to hear us cover, send us an email at finelawpodcast at thompsonreuters.com. 